Good morning. Woo. I feel like my mic is hot. Hopefully what I share will just equally be as hot. Well, thank you. I, I teach at a university, as Jamie said, and I speak from time to time at the church, at, at the Saddleback Covenant Church with Kevin Davenport, and you can usually line up my sermons with my syllabus at the university uh, because I, I love to, to get into the works that I'm teaching, and so I, I don't know if I want to apologize, but you're going to get some Edgar Allan Poe today just to forewarn you uh, because this is what we're doing in American Lit back in the West Coast, and it's, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful marriage, I think, being able to think through God's kingdom in our lives and to look at a history of, of world literature. And so this is what I love. Uh, so rooted, reaching, and risking. It's a great topic. I guess I can't really say that because I was part of the planning group that made it up. But nonetheless, I'm going to start with rooted. When I think of rooted and as I was preparing for this, I looked at Luke 11. In Luke 11, there's this great passage where Jesus is teaching, this is where he teaches the disciples to pray, he's healing, he's doing all these kinds of things, and this older lady, I assume it's an older lady, funny that I just said that now, I assume it's an older lady in the crowd, gets excited, and she just bursts out, that's a picture, she bursts out and she says, exactly, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you, <laughs> feel free to yell that out at any point during my sermon, <clears throat> blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed right? This woman is excited. I mean, Jesus has blown their minds, and she's just one more, just excited. I, I don't blame her. Son of a gun, basically, she's saying, right? This boy's great. His mother must be so proud, right? My grandmother would have said something like this. So proud to have raised, to have created, to have produced such an amazing man. What amazing young man this is, right? Well, Jesus in, a, I'm sure, a very gentle way, knowing what we know of Jesus, he's probably smiling as he gives us corrective. And he says to her, right, he offers a corrective. He sees what this is, right? He sees what this is. This is the human love for pedigree, right? This is the human love for achievement, for the, all for the sake of proving to myself and others that I am significant. I am valuable. Look what I have produced. Look at my kids, Right? say that a lot myself, as my kids do good things. When they do bad, I just kind of walk away and pretend they're not mine. <laughs> Jesus' actual words were, blessed rather, right? Looks at her, I'm sure. He looks at her and smiles. Blessed rather, my dear, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's a powerful statement. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. True blessing is not found in pedigree or achievement. The woman in the crowd claims that Jesus' mother was blessed to have produced such an amazing man, but Jesus corrects her, stating the blessed ones are those who hear and believe what God's word says about reality and identity. Jesus' mother Mary definitely had a good handle. I'm sure Jesus was probably thinking, yeah, my mother, she kind of knew what was going on, right? But I think in some ways he represents his mother better by this corrective. I don't think it's a, a slam on his mother, but rather a corrective on who she really was, perhaps. We see that in Luke 1. She even says this herself after the, the angel comes to visit her about the Annunciation, right? For he who is mighty, Mary says, has done great things for me. He, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has sworn, or he has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He 
has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those in humble estate. This is a beautiful statement of Mary's, right? And perhaps Jesus reflecting on those things his mother had said. Of course, he wasn't there. He was in her womb. But nonetheless, as God Almighty, he might have been privy to that conversation. Mary got it, right? She knew that those are blessed who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary was one who had heard the word of God all her life and kept it close. When I see that word kept, right, who keep it, those are ones who hold on tightly and keep it close. Mary gets it and Jesus proclaims it. To be rooted, I think this, to be rooted is to be blessed with a clear personal identity. And I gather that from John Calvin, actually, in the Institutes. The first, first statement of the Institutes of the Christian Faith by John Calvin, there is no knowledge of self without knowledge of God. There is no knowledge of God without knowledge of self. This is how he starts his great thesis on what it is to be the Christian church, right? And so, rooted, so to be rooted is to be blessed with a clear personal identity. Who am I? It's an identity which cannot be extricated from God's purpose and plan for my life. Blessing comes when I hear in my soul, right? That's an important thing. What the word says about me and I keep it by God's grace. I claim it for myself. This happens really in the water of our baptism. I picture myself in my baptism standing before those waters. And this is kind of strange, but I do work in an office covered in sticky notes. I know it sounds odd, but all these notes are what the world says about me. All the shame and the guilt, why I'm not worthy. I'm just covered head to toe with these flapping yellow papers. Just all over, just covered and inhibited by these papers. I'm holding a giant chalkboard with hundreds of bulleted items. Not valuable until I complete each of these items. Not blessed until I perform, produce, succeed, and win. Holding that right before the waters of baptism, right? Then the terrifying moment. The terrifying moment of baptism. And it is a terrifying moment. It is death. You're going in the waters to die, right? Are you with me? The terrifying moment. I confess belief. I confess in, in God's salvation, the perfect work of Christ Jesus, his death and resurrection on my behalf, and I am carried down into the water. A horrifying moment of surrender. In the water of my baptism, the sticky notes are torn away. The chalkboard is destroyed, and I rise from the water, not only cleansed, but covered, right? Covered in Christ's righteousness, in his power, in his love. That's a great image. I mean, you've all, well, all of you who've been baptized have experienced this. This is a a massive moment. And I want to emphasize the horror. <laughs> I am talking about Edgar Allan Poe. I'm prepping a little bit. But I want to talk about the terror of this. There is a death that is taking place here. And what we must not ever forget, it's in that moment and for all eternity that God's voice sings out over me. This is my child. We say that. I want to hear it loud. This is my child. This is God, right? We're talking about God. Let's go a little louder. This is my child. And no one will take her. No one will take him from my hand. This is God's word over us for all of eternity. This is my child. I am pleased. They are covered in the righteous blood of my son. 
No one will take them from my hand. God's mighty hand stretching across the universe far beyond the skies. No one will take him or her from my hand. Ugh. I told Eric, I said that one of the best things about preaching, best things about getting up here is I get to say things like this, powerful statements, and I get to say them over you. And as I teach at Concordia, it's a Christian school, I get to say these words over my students. No one will take you out of his hand. You cannot be kidnapped. You cannot be snatched up. This is God's sovereignty. We see it in Zephaniah. I've been talking about this. I've been just soaking in these words of Zephaniah for the last few weeks. Zephaniah declares with passion, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Oh man, I love this. This is a God of the universe who is singing over each of us. As we rise from the baptismal waters, as we go about our lives for eternity, he is saying, and singing over you, exulting over you. This is powerful. This is a powerful note of identity that we must keep. This is hearing the word of God and keeping it. This is not for someone else. This is for each and every one of us to know and to hear and to hold fast. Amen? To hear the word of God and to keep it means remembering my baptism in all of its glorious horror. It means remembering my mysterious rise from death and the words God declares over me. So Edgar Allan Poe, not typically one that is referenced for his deep Christian insight, but this is a mistake. I'm going to set that lie to rest here. Poe was one of the great American romantics, mid-19th century. You got Emerson, Whitman, Melville, Hawthorne, all these guys in his company. Romanticism grew out of a dissatisfaction with the, with the focus and limited view that the Enlightenment gives us uh, with our hope in reason and rationality, right? Romanticism wanted to blow open some doors and say, you know, reason and rationality, that's fine. You got your reason, you got your rational thought, you got your scientific method, these are all great things. But it's only one little piece of how we discover what is real and true. Truth must be experienced with a full engagement of the senses. This is the romantics. I love it. Many of Poe's characters begin as logically and rationally minded people, but through an experience with something terrible, terrifying, and often grotesque, these characters become more broad-minded. If they live, right? If they live, right. That's a key, key point. Only some of them live. The ones who live... <laughs> are more broad-minded, they're more open to mystery, and ultimately, more alive. So the one I want to focus on, it's called the premature burial. It's a great text, very short. I, I suggest you can get it free on, uh, online. The narrator opens the story with a rational and very kind of clear description of his medical condition, catalepsy. All right? Catalepsy, uh, a medical condition, causes the affected person to fall into a trance-like state. This is all within the Poe universe, right? I'm sure he's taking some liberties with these uh, scientific, uh, scientific systems. But nonetheless, it fall, it allows the, person, the person falls into a trance-like state. They become very still and stiff. They look like they're dead. And they can stay like this for hours or even days. In this guy's condition, in this guy's situation, even for days, right? And this condition leads our narrator in the premature burial to worry that one day he might go into a cataleptic fit, be among strangers 
be thought dead and then buried alive, right? And that is just as we expect from Poe, the narrator's greatest fears are realized, right? So he is abroad and suffers from one of these fits and he says this. I felt too that I lay upon some hard substance. He comes back to, to awake, right? He wakes back up from one of these fits. And by something similar, my sides were also closely compressed. So far, I had not ventured to stir any of my limbs, but now I violently threw up my arms, which had been lying at length with the wrists crossed. They struck a solid wooden substance, which extended above my person at an elevation of not more than six inches from my face. I could no longer doubt that I reposed within a coffin at last. I had fallen into a trance while absent from home, while among strangers, then, when, or how, I could not remember. And it was they who had buried me as a dog, nailed up in some co common coffin and thrust deep, deep, and forever into some ordinary and nameless grave. As this awful conviction forced itself thus into my innermost chambers of my soul, I once again struggled to cry aloud, and in second endeavor, I succeeded. A long, wild, and continuous shriek. Every Poe character has one of these shrieks. It's one of the best things. I make my classes do it. Um, I'll, 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 I'll not make you guys do it. But anyway, a long, wild, continuous shriek or yell of agony resounded through the realms of the subterranean night. He believes he's been buried alive. And how and now he will wait out this slow, terrifying, terrible death. The scream however, is met with an unexpected response. Hey, 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 what does it say here? It says, hey, ho, what, what's all this screaming about? What the devil's the matter now? What do you mean by yowling in that air kind of style? <laughs> I was seized and shaken without ceremony, he says, for several minutes by a bunch of rough-looking individuals. Remember, he goes into these states and he forgets everything, right? He forgets everything that happened to him. They did not arouse me from my slumber, for I was wide awake when I screamed, but they restored me to the full possession of my memory. He realizes he is in a safe place. This terror lasts 15 minutes or so in this confined spot, but he realizes, he remembers now he's in the bunk of a ship, right? A very small compartment. It all comes back to him after he's shaken and after he's reintroduced to reality, he faces his mortality in this scene his frailty, certain death in the most terrifying way, and he is changed. He is transformed. The story, it goes on. Uh, Out of evil proceeded good, he says. My, my soul acquired tone, acquired temper. I went abroad. I took vigorous exercise. I breathed the free air of heaven. I thought upon other subjects than death. In short, I became a new man and lived a man's life. From that memorable night, I dismissed forever my charnel apprehensions, his, his, his obsession with death, and with them vanished the cataleptic disorder, of which, perhaps, they had been less the consequence than the cause. This man's life is changed because of his experience with death, because he has a visceral, very close experience with his death, with a death. He has more than a brush but rather a real, visceral experience with the horrors of death and burial. The satisfaction the narrator experiences after the fact is both surprising and glorious, right? He is freed from his fears, and he acquires a new clarity and a new confidence. He understands that the bondage of fear 
he lived with before his presumed burial was actually a death-like state. He had been dead in many ways before his presumed burial. The narrator's symbolic death and resurrection give him confidence to live with courage to take new risks. His death can be interpreted as a baptism, a fresh start with a new vision and a clear understanding of self. I'd like to take the interpretation even a little farther, claiming that Poe perhaps had Romans 6 in mind as he liberated his character from the curse of death. Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been unified with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Poe was no stranger to the scriptures. His father was a, a, a very strong Christian man as well. But this, this connection to me seems very uh, realistic in some ways given his upbringing. Romans 6, could it be that Poe's tale of terror is a tale that describes the beautiful and glorious horror of our baptism? Could it be that in the glorious horror of our baptism that we find strength to reach and take risks in a world of corruption, deception, and death? Well, last November I was in Cambodia. I had the opportunity to, to work with an amazing church community in the city of Batambang. Every man and woman in this church had suffered under the genocidal horror organized by Pol Pot in the 70s. Each had stories that make Edgar Allan Poe tales look like easy bedtime reading. Our host was a man named Sambat. He was an amazing man, a very kind and loving person. He described to me the way that he and his parents left Cambodia when he was a child of six or seven. His mom and dad woke him up in the middle of the night. We have to go now. Tomorrow the military is going to kill your father. He remembers this vividly. He says, we got up grab what I could grab. We started running through the jungles of Cambodia, running toward the Thai border. He said, even now to this day, he's a 40-year-old man now, he's about my age. He says, even now to this day, I could still smell the, the smell of the rotting corpses over which we had to jump. Hundreds of rotting corpses in the jungles of Cambodia as his child, his parents, his mother holding his baby brother, ran for their lives. It was each of the people in this church. Later he told me, he said, everyone in this church has been touched by the death and the terror of Pol Pot. All of them left at some point and were called back. And, that, and that's what kind of got me. This was a story of nearly every member in the church. They had each faced the horrors of sin and death. They had each been called back to minister to this ravaged nation, to this particular community. The church's primary vision, incredible, was to take the gospel to the Khmer Rouge military leaders, those who had oppressed and killed their own family members, to come back and take the gospel to the military leaders who had been scattered throughout the Cambodian jungles outside of Batambang. The pastor of the church, a guy named Christopher Lapel, described a pivotal moment in their ministry. He was out preaching in one of the villages right near Batambang. And he finished, and a man came up. And he said, Pastor, um... Can I ask you a question? Yeah. He said, would God forgive a man if he's killed another man? 
Yes, yes, he would, yes. Wait, wait, Pastor, would God forgive a man if he has killed five men? Yeah. Yeah, he would. He wouldn't. He didn't connect. Finally, the man says, Pastor, um, would, would God forgive a man if he's killed thousands and thousands of others? And it, the light came on for Christopher Lapel all of a sudden, and he realized, oh, this is, this is one of the major leaders of the Khmer Rouge. And, and as he led this man to Christ, what came out was this man was a man named Duk. Actually, Duk right now is serving a lifetime sentence in Cambodia, but he was the head of the infamous S-21 prison in Phnom Penh, the head leader of this prison, 14 to 16,000 deaths, not just deaths, but tortures, miserable tortures. We toured this, this facility. They have chains on the ground still left, splattering of blood still left, not cleaned up, but there for the memory. And this man, Duk, came to Christ that day. The pastor baptized him and instructed him to turn himself over to the Cambodian officials. Pastor LaPelle and his church have made it their mission to reach and risk in a way that defies human comprehension. These Cambodian Christians have more than head knowledge of their baptism. They know the terrifying depths of their own depravity and all that was accomplished to set them free. These men and women know what it means to hear the word of God and to keep it. Each of them, as I said, had been called back. They, they have, their lives had been ravaged. And I would say, and I would, I would contend, again, having talked to several of them, that this was the work of God of reconciliation in their hearts. Radical reconciliation that can only take place if baptism is more than just a word. Right? If baptism is more than just a sheet of paper your pastor signs, but rather a horrifying, terrible, visceral experience that you experienced because you realize that you are dying, you are dead in your sin, and you go down to those waters, what? For life. You say, yes, I want new life. I want the righteousness of Christ over me because I'm covered in shame. And who am I to hold on to blame for no matter what anyone else has done? I am now covered in the glorious righteousness of Christ, which is a righteousness that says, I forgive, and I forgive, and I forgive. Amen. May we be rooted in the great glory of our baptism. An experience, I hope, by this story from Edgar Allan Poe, right? A close connection to your baptism, your death and resurrection. May we be rooted in the great glory of this baptism, the fruits of which will allow us to extend ourselves into a world of darkness and a jungle of evil, to be ever reaching and risking as our Lord and Savior reached and risked all for us. Amen. Thank you.